Hello, I'm Chris Coe, and this is a Newton & Co podcast for Eye for the Light. My co-host is David Newton, professional photographer. David, hello. Hello, Chris. Good to be back. Welcome, everybody. Today, we have a very special guest. I'm sure all our guests are very special, but, Absolutely. but this one actually has an incredibly interesting story to tell. Uh, it goes by the name Aaron Joukowsky, or Bertie, and uh, he's recently produced a book called Animosity, which, well, apart from the fact that he's award-winning, it deals with some things that some listeners, should you get a chance to see, and I urge you to do so, will find very distressing. Uh, animals in crisis. Um, but he's a, he's a well-known photographer. His subjects are something that many listeners, if they get a chance to view his work, and we'd urge them to do so, could find distressing. Uh, animal cruelty around the world. Aaron, welcome. Okay, thank you very much for having me, guys. Pleasure. You're welcome. It's a um, pleasure to meet you. I've, I've known your work for a little while, actually. Um, and before we get started, do you want to be Aaron or Bertie? Uh, e either way, either way. Bertie to friends, and I like to think of you guys as friends now, so, so there we are. And that's going to include all the listeners, then? Uh, yes. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So, I'm going to start with the biggest and hardest but simplest question. How did you get started in animal cruelty as, as your subject? Uh, so, well, I actually had um, a more sort of corporate uh, background. I worked in the advertising industry for a while as a copywriter. Um, I then started a modelling agency with my best friend from school um, and then uh, very I became very uh, detached from the modeling world, as you would do. Um, I didn't like what I was seeing when I looked in the mirror, um, physically and metaphorically. Um, and I'd always adored David Attenborough, and you know, I used to spend my nights, um, whilst I wasn't being upset in the modeling industry, um, watching David Attenborough films. And then it dawned on me, you know, why am I spending my whole time dreaming about li living another life? when I could actually be doing it. And I'm, I was 28 years old at the time, it was 13 years ago. So I sold everything within a couple of weeks um, and I bought a cheap camera and headed off to Africa on a wildlife filmmaking course. Uh, and the goal at the time was to really share the beauty of the natural world with as many people as possible, you know, much in the same way that Attenborough does. Um, but what I actually saw was that things weren't quite as they seemed on those BBC documentaries. Uh, and at every turn, animals were under threat, uh, whether it was from the traditional medicine trade, exotic pet trade, wildlife tourism, overfishing. Uh, and for me, these stories were much more rich, they were much more complex, and most importantly, they were much more important. Um, so I just, yeah, kind of then spent the next uh, 13 years of my life traveling around the world uh, documenting these issues, anything from uh, the tortoise mafia in Madagascar to seal clubbing in Namibia to deforestation in Borneo uh, to more of a, you know, my recent focus has been on the wildlife tourism issue, uh, industry, sorry. Um, and I've worked primarily as a photojournalist, uh, but also as a filmmaker. Um, so I, I present shows as well, um, and I've worked with different broadcasters. Um, we've just done a, a big passion project, four years of my life, making a film about the orangutan tourism industry, which was a deeply disturbing, um, really hard issue um, that really kind of took everything and took out of me for a long time. 
So, um, yeah, I know it's, it's really, um, you know, it's not for the faint of heart, this industry. Um, and I've seen some really terrible things. Um, but also I've got to work on some very important issues and I've got to meet people. It's, we have to remember it's not just doom and gloom and I have met people who are dedicating their lives to helping animals. Um, if you just see the bad in, in the world, then you're gonna quickly lose hope and put the camera down. Um, and yeah, nobody wants that. You're very on topic now. Um, but if we take you back to where you started, did you have a love of photography before you went on that filmmaking course? Or has that kind of evolved with the passion for animals? Uh, well, actually, my business partner at the modeling agency was a professional photographer. And I'd always been a bit interested in it and started to learn about photography. Um, but I was much more interested in the filmmaking side. Um, so the wildlife filmmaking course was really focused on making documentaries. But then I went to Mozambique and I bought myself a, an underwater uh, housing and a camera and I met guys making a film about shark finning um, and I said to them you know I'm desperate to learn about this this issue and can I do anything can I volunteer and they said well we need a behind-the-scenes photographer so I thought okay I can do that and I went and bought a camera and I watched some tutorials and I read a few articles uh, and then suddenly I thought I was a photographer um, and you know I, of course uh, in hindsight, I would have done things maybe differently, but I kind of fell into the world of photography that way. And it was that trip that really changed my life. It was a trip to the shark finning camps in Mozambique. Um, and I went and uh, spent you know, a week living with the shark fishermen, going out with them every single day on their boat, um, trying to document their lives as shark fishermen. But they weren't, they weren't actually catching any sharks because those oceans had been completely emptied of fish. And then it was on the final day and they pulled up a huge bull shark. Um, and I was there and, and lo and behold, I got some snaps that I'm still really proud of and photographs that I still use to this day. It's still one of um, the first images on my website, um, partly because of how symbolic it was to me as well. Uh, one of the first major issues that I worked on. And it was that shot that was uh, made me think, you know what, I can, I can do this. And, this is how powerful photography is as a tool for telling these important stories. Then started to release the images and contact magazine editors and managed to get quite a lot of exposure for the issue. Um, but then of course, you know, the more I looked into these stories, the more I realized it's not just sharks that are being caught for their fins, but it's tuna that's being overfished. It's, it's the shrimp trawling industry that's leading to huge amounts of bycatch. It's rhinos being killed for their horns and just looking at all of these different issues. And my mind was just blown. I was exploding at that time with creativity. Um, so yeah, that's really, that's really how it happened. And how do you, I mean, a lot of these things you photograph, I'm sure are controlled by should we say less savoury individuals, potentially a criminal underworld, that undoubtedly presents its own challenges. How do you get in and out, apparently largely unscathed? Um, yeah, it's a good question. It, it is very dangerous, um, no doubt about it, um, because a lot of the industries that I'm covering 
uh, involve huge sums of money. Uh, for example, the wildlife tourism industry is multi-billion dollar per year industry. And a lot of it has ties to the mafia and gangsters and the underground. I mean, it's, it's really a, a very sketchy industry. And if you go out there and you expose people, and you expose the conditions that they're keeping their animals and you put a negative slant on it, then absolutely they're gonna wanna hurt you. <laughs> no two ways around it. And I've been left in some really, really uncomfortable positions and things that I can't really talk about. Um, a lot of my work has been done undercover. It's work that I would love to show here, uh, but I just can't because I know that uh, if certain people found out who it was who took the photos, then I would be in a lot of danger and so would my family. Um, so that's just part and parcel of the job. You have to accept that there are huge risks in it, um, not just wildlife tourism, of course, traditional medicine trade and any, anything involving wild animals. We're looking at, while um, the illegal trade in wildlife is now the fourth largest illegal trade on the planet. Uh, so huge amounts, huge sums of money are being made off the trade of animals. Um, so you, yeah, absolutely, you have to be careful, but I accept the risks now, and for me, the risks are worth taking. I guess it's it's not just how do you, or you know, what are the risks, but how do you even get in and get out, like physically? Yeah, you, there are risks involved. You can see the risks up front. You're willing to take those risks, but how do you physically get access to these places, like without giving away all your secrets, obviously, and, yeah. and creating a new tourist industry of wannabe photographers? But you know, how do you? Um, well, it's different. Sometimes you'll just enter a place as a tourist uh, and really you don't have to do anything to get access, access at all and then just you sneak around a little bit with your camera. Um, so that's the kind of mind-boggling thing is a lot of the images that you see of mine are just taken as a tourist. Uh, then there's other times, other stories I've worked on, you posed as... Um, you know, someone who wanted to do, put a positive spin on the story um, and then you've got access that way. I use uh, different pseudonyms. Um, and really you just have to be able to be good at uh, talking your way into and out of any situation. Um, and I'm not very good at that. I'm not a very good liar. Um, my bottom lip sort of quivers a lot. It goes, goes like, like this when I start to lie. And I'm really, you know, I'm not... You can imagine, like, some of the, some of the guys have seen recently at the exhibition and you know they're just so kind of unassuming that they can get away with it whereas I'm really not like that um, so yeah there's there's ways that you can do it you mentioned um, that you face physical dangers at times mm -hmm. the, the work that you're doing presents you with some emotional challenges as well you personally how do you cope with that yeah, the, there's physical dangers definitely, and the, emotion, the emotional side is something that I've really struggled with, particularly for the last couple of years. And I was just going and going and going and pushing myself to the limit and going from job to job to job. Um, and it was actually a couple of years ago, and I must have done 15, 20 countries in the space of a year, not having any breaks between jobs, going from one kind of traumatic issue to another. I was traveling around Europe covering wildlife tourism things, wildlife tourism attractions, then I was in West Africa doing a piece on voodoo markets, then I was in the Czech Republic making a documentary about snakes used as exotic pets, and then I got back and I was living in Bali, and I got back and I was just a, a broken individual. And then I got a call from a client and they said, Cambodia, story on dog eating, you've got to come, come and cover it. I just thought, oh, I can't do this, but of course I did it. 
Um, and that was really the straw that kind of broke the camel's back then after that. And it was a story about how three million dogs are killed every year in Cambodia for their meat. Um, there's a lot of exposure about how it happens in Vietnam and China, but not a lot of people know about it in Cambodia. And what's interesting about the story is that they are drowned in cages in these like dungeons. So they just round them up from the street, stuff them in cages and then dunk them in fetid water. So I went out there and covered it. I hardly said a word throughout the, the entire week with all my client and other press there as well. Um, and just those are just images that, that haunt me to this day. Uh, and after that, I kind of thought, I'm, you know what, I, I don't know how long I can do this for. Uh, luckily or unluckily, it was the time that COVID had just started and it meant it was a kind of an enforced break. So that gave me quite a long time to kind of gather my thoughts and work on animosity, my book, um, and to really decide, look, is this something that I can continue doing? Um, it's really, it's almost like PTSD. And I kind of look at this work almost like war photography. You're just documenting misery and suffering and cruelty the whole time. Um, so then, um, yeah, it's been a couple of years. I've picked up the camera. I've, used, I've been on a few assignments recently um, in the Philippines where I'm currently living. But actually now I'm starting to get back into it. I feel inspired again. I have some other projects on the go. But I really think that we have to, in this line of work, you have to take breaks. Uh, and you have to be able to deal with them. You can't just keep pushing yourself because eventually you'll break down. And then if you do, you're not going to be able to cover any stories anymore and you're going to be no good for anyone. Just from a, a story perspective, obviously in, in your book you've covered a very broad spectrum of, of wildlife in crisis issues. You don't have a formal background in conservation or, or in any kind of science industry. So where do you get your stories from? How do you learn about what stories are going on? What's, what's current right now? Where do you get that kind of... Because there's a lot of science in the book and in your images and, and in what's going on because obviously there's conservation. How do you find out about these things? Um, a lot of the time it's uh, research. You, you, the story about Madagascar and the tortoise mafia, I was just researching, reading on BBC News, and I read a story and I thought, wow, that's fascinating. And I saw the, uh, the scientist who was being interviewed there and I got in touch with him. And then a month later, I'm on a plane to Madagascar. Sometimes people recommend stories to me. They say, do you know about X? Then I go and research it and decide whether or not I want to cover it. Uh, now more and more I'm working with NGOs, uh, that's the bulk of my work. I work for WWF, I4, Four Paws, World Animal Protection, Born Free Foundation, and they send me on assignments um, because we try and create these kind of all-encompassing media campaigns with film work, with photography, with media content. And sometimes it's just, these are just passion projects and things that I'm really interested in. Uh, I think the more interest and passion you have for a subject, the more it will come across in your work. So I've covered stories that really I'm not that interested in, and I think that then comes across in your photography. So now more and more, I used to just kind of say yes to everything. Now more and more I'm being much more selective about the projects that I work on. You mentioned um, some projects you've done where you can't publish the pictures for safety reasons. What happens to those? Are, are they going to be something you can publish in the future? You just can't do it now, or are they going to stay in a drawer? They stay in a drawer. Um, they, get, they got published um, from a number of these jobs. That, yeah, these images have been published, but I just don't attach my name to them. Mm -hmm. And they have gone on and they've 
really made a serious impact, which I could be hugely proud of, but it's very <laughs> strange feeling knowing that your images have led to certain things happening and positive results, but not having your name attached with them. But ultimately that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I get the credit for it. What matters is what happens in the end and whether there's been a, any sort of tangible results. I mean, this might be a really obvious question, but what is your end goal with some of these stories? Are you hoping things get shut down entirely, they get turned to the better, or, you know, it's a sliding scale, I guess, as to how far it's going to go. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think what you're always looking for in this work are victories, and they can be small victories, like someone just getting in touch and saying, oh, I now know more about wildlife tourism because of your work, and I now don't go to certain zoos, or someone who's watched a film and they've said, oh, you know, I used to think that I wanted a pet otter and now I've seen your documentary and I don't want a pet otter anymore. Uh, so those are the kind of smaller victories. And then you have the larger ones whereby you might uh, get the government to react to one of your stories and then they might go and shut down a, a zoo, for example, or it might lead to the rescue of certain animals. Uh, and that has happened before. And I can tell you that feeling when an animal is rescued from a wildlife tourism attraction because of something that you've done and then suddenly you can see it at a sanctuary is the most amazing feeling in the world. So yes, yeah, success uh, can be measured on, on many levels in terms of photojournalism, or it can be in the form of um, you know, your work being in a magazine or making a film off the back of it. I don't necessarily consider myself an activist. Um, you know, I'm, a, I'm a content creator, I'm, I make images and, and films. You've got to leave the uh, activism and the science to the people who are the experts. You mentioned uh, David Attenborough as your wildlife and conservation influence. What about on the photographic side? Who are the photographers that have inspired you or collections of work that have, have led you to, to go and try different things in the field? Yeah, uh, a real source of inspiration is Brent Sturton. I think his work is absolutely phenomenal. And of course, as photographers and photojournalists more specifically, uh, you don't just want to be going out there and capturing your, a scene. You want also your images to have some form of beauty to them, however haunting they may be. And even if I'm taking a photo of like a dog in a bucket of blood, I want it to have, it has to have some kind of um, arresting aesthetic. Uh, and that's what I think Brent is phenomenally good at doing. I think his images are beautiful. Uh, James Natray has been another real inspiration um, and seeing his work recently at an exhibition, I'm just my mind is blown looking at every single one of his photos. The emotion that he captures, the technical side, the composition, the, it, everything is just almost flawless. Um, so I would really say those two are, are huge inspirations. Then there's um, Jasper, uh, Jasper Durst, whose work I really like, a National Geographic photographer who's really a master of composition. So I've learned a lot from him. I mean, there's so many good photographers these days. Uh, Joanne MacArthur, uh, who works for a company called We Animals Media, also a phenomenal um, conservation photojournalist. So many sources of inspiration. What's next for you? What, what you, you said you had hit a kind of a wall with the overload of, of animal cruelty and you've taken a bit of a break. What's the next direction for you? Yeah, so I took a bit of a break. Uh, started trading cryptocurrency, <laughs> a little bit of a yeah, sidestep, and um, which actually was you know it was good, good.
good at the time because it allows you a little bit of financial freedom to then go and work on the on the subjects that you want to work on. But now I've had enough of that. It's the most grotesque, disgusting industry, and I'm back and I'm raring to go, ready for with my camera for the next assignments. I'm actually off to Zimbabwe next week. Uh, going to spend three weeks in the bush. I've got some new goodies and toys from Canon with me. And it's just about rediscovering the love of photography again. And I think not surrounding oneself with negativity all the time and also covering some positive stories and just being with animals out in the wild. I spent nearly 10 years of my life in Africa and I completely fell in love with it and the, and the people and the animals and the wild spaces. So it's uh, without sounding too cheesy, I want to connect with nature uh, and with photography again. And then after that, uh, the world is starting to open up again and, and notice starting to get some inquiries. I've got a potential job about the tiger trade in South Africa, which could be very interesting. And then another couple of um, passion projects that I want to pursue. So um, in terms of the, the, the trip you're just about to do to Zimbabwe, is this to bring together the beautiful side of con conservation with the animal cruelty or are you just doing that for fun? Um, well, actually, speaking to you yesterday, Chris, I was quite interested by the chat that we were um, having about juxtaposing the, the shots of animals in the wild and animals in captivity. And that's something I'm going to go away and think about a little bit when I'm in the bush. Maybe um, I've never, like I said earlier in the interview, I've never really been that interested about showing animals in their, in their natural habitat because anyone for me can take a photo of an elephant in the bush. but having a picture of an elephant juggling a hula hoop in a wildlife tourism attraction is, is much more interesting. But maybe that's going to change. What we want to photograph and our styles, we evolve over time. So it's going to be really interesting for me when I have a camera in my hand again, I'm, I'm out in the middle of the bush surrounded by elephants and wildlife, how it feels to be there. And um, I guess I'll let you know next week. Yeah, that would be interesting. Um, it, I just felt it's a, an interesting way to get um, Joe Public mm -hmm. interested in the more horrific stuff and therefore have a greater impact from that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I really agree. We're always having to push the boundaries and thinking of new and interesting ways to get our work out there. And that's really a big challenge, and it has been for the last 13 years, is how you get conservation images out there. Because a lot of the time, people just want to look away. Even a lot of my own family won't look at my images. They won't even open my book. So how do you get people to care about these subjects without repelling them? Uh, and that's really a huge challenge, and it's one that really pushes us artistically. So that's why I'm going to go away and have a little think about that. Maybe there is a new way of getting these stories out there without cramming it down people's throats. Is it actually arguably even more shocking? You hook them in with something soft and fluffy, and then it becomes even more shocking when you show them the opposite side exactly. of it on the follow-up page. Exactly, and that's something that we often do uh, with our documentaries, uh, because of course in a film, you can, in photography, you have just that one frame to tell a complete story. Uh, in a film, you have often 50, 52 minutes, and a lot of the time we want to show the, the animals in their natural habitat. We want to highlight the people who are working to try and protect them and preserve the species and then you can go into all the dark side and the threats so yeah maybe that's something um yeah maybe this could end up being kind of an offshoot of the work that i'm doing covering wildlife tourism attractions i don't know i don't know it's still very much in its uh, infancy stages but uh, i'm gonna have three weeks now to sit and think about it in the bush
conservation is very much on trend and people are jumping on the bandwagon. Does that create any problems for you with what you're trying to do? Problems how? Well, it can gloss over a lot of the issues because everybody wants to get involved with it. Well, yeah. Are you, are you able to kind of cut through that and link with the proper conservation projects, not the people who are just doing it because they think everybody wants to hear about conservation? Yeah, it's, it's really challenging because conservation has for so long has been like the C word. It's been negative and it's uh, often portrayed in a negative light. It's depressing or it's for anoraks or people just don't want to know about these things. We've all got difficult lives, particularly during COVID, like everyone has challenges. Do you want to know about these you know, more depressing stories? And I would often go and you know, pitch to broadcasters. I've been doing it for 13 years now. And you go in and it's some executive kind of, they pat you on the knee and they'll say, oh, you're doing a very good job for conservation, but it's just not for us, dear. We want something more light and fluffy. <laughs> to which I don't say you patronizing fucks, but I, uh, I, I certainly think it. Um, so that's why we've kind of taken it upon ourselves to make films and get them self-funded and then release them. And actually we've had great success doing that. So why broadcasters don't want to take more of an interest in, in our work is um, quite frustrating. But yeah, so suddenly over recent years, starting with David Attenborough really, he's been talking a lot more about conservation and the threats facing the planet. And now suddenly it, it is becoming a bit cooler. So how do you distinguish between kind of the, 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 the really important stories and... and so what, sorry, Chris, going back to your question, can you just clarify, um, are you saying, what, how do you distinguish between the important conservation stories and ones that aren't, or, or how...? Yeah, there's been a lot of conservation progress, projects yeah. going on for a long time, and they're doing seriously good work. On the ground? On the ground, yes. Yeah. And now people are jumping on board with the idea of conservation. Yeah. And there is a lot of, um, within the travel industry certainly, yeah. there are a lot of, of companies or people who attach the conservation word yeah. to what they're doing, but yes. it really isn't. That's right. Um, and that can, okay, got in a way, minimalise the subject and take away from the really serious stuff that you're doing as well as the Sorry. good conservation projects. So I guess like sport washing a country for human rights but now conservation washing an industry yes to to make it look nice and clean yes yeah and that's a massive issue it's with greenwashing and you go to any of these wildlife tourism attractions and you see these photographs of animals in the wild and they tell you about the work that they're doing for conservation they tell you they're going to release animals into the wild they tell you that they're doing research and science and it's 99.9 percent .9 of the time and it's a load of crap and how do you see through that it's really really difficult because these places they, they do it day in day out and it's almost like they believe it themselves but I can tell you most of the time that these zoos, they say they're all about education and conservation. Whereas when you go to your average zoo, do you learn anything about the animals? Not really. They say they're working on conservation. Whereas most of the animals that they have there, they're not critically endangered anyway. So it's really a load of rubbish. But as the consumer, how do you cut through all of that? It's very challenging. And the only way you can is by doing really um, a lot of research and by educating yourself about some of these issues. You know, they've done these studies that when people go into wildlife tourism attractions, they have these mixed thoughts. And on one hand, they're thinking, oh, what about the animal welfare issues? Or 
know, that tiger's on a chain, is that a good thing for the tiger? And then on the other hand, they're thinking, oh, won't that photo look good on Instagram? And they have these kind of internal tussles for maybe all of 30 seconds, and then inevitably the uh, Instagram photo wins out. So what we have to do is we have to readdress that balance, and we have to get people thinking about the conservation first and the self-publicity second. And can you do that through photography and filmmaking? You can. So what, so what I really try and do is to not just preach to the converted. Uh, so it's no good just having your work published in you know, National Geographic or the big conservation magazines. You want to be reaching people who don't necessarily know about it. And everyone kind of poo-poos the mail uh, as an example. But having actually a story about animal welfare in the mail reaches a massive audience and people who don't necessarily know about these issues. And actually, publications like the Mail have really started taking uh, animal welfare very seriously. I used to also write for men's magazines. I used to write for FHM a lot. Um, so trying to reach the, the demographics who previously had no awareness about conservation, that's really important. Great. Well, that would seem like a, a good point to... Well, almost. Almost. Uh, you've got, got another got, question? Yeah, I do. I do have another question, and it's a common question because I'm curious. If you, but with a slightly different start, so regular listeners will know that we ask pretty much all our photographers the same question. When David said we, he means he. Uh, well, you might have asked it once or twice. Well, anyway, I'm intrigued now. If, so you've, you've been a photographer, content creator for 13 years. Yeah. So we won't, we won't skip all the way back to when you were a child, but if you could go back to you 13 years ago, what would you tell yourself now about being a photographer or doing the work that you're doing that would be really useful for you to have known then? Do it properly. Uh, and I cannot tell you how many shots I missed at the beginning just through not understanding the art of photography. I guess because I fell into it kind of accidentally that I didn't have it. I was just kind of in, a, in the midst of it. Uh, and I thought at the time the best way of learning was doing. Whereas actually, if I could go back in time and just spend a few months studying photography, that would have been hugely beneficial because I look, I, God, I covered some fascinating stories all those years ago and my photographs are just not very good because I was a beginner. So yeah, if I could go back in time, I would, I would study and I would study the art and maybe perhaps go to university to learn photography. Interesting. Mm. Okay, well, thank you very much, Aaron. Bertie. Pleasure. Uh, enlightening uh, and interesting and, you know, full of admiration for the places you put yourself. Thanks. Tell those stories and, and, you know, what it does to you potentially physically, but uh, as you said, sort of mentally as well. Uh, and yet you still keep coming. You're still willing to go out there and put yourself physically, sort of literally or metaphorically in harm's way. Hanging on by a thread is what I would say. But <laughs> <laughs> it's really important because it's only the work of people like you that bring this stuff to people's attention and that's the only way we can make this a, a better environment for wildlife. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, it's um yeah, for anyone who's interested in this type of work, I would say, yeah, it's really not for everyone. It's a huge challenge. Uh, it's difficult to make money, it's difficult to get your work out there, it's difficult emotionally and physically. But if it is something that's really of interest, then it's the most remarkably challenging and rewarding thing I've ever done in my life. And I, am, I know I moan about it, but I'm genuinely so thankful that this is the career that I chose. Bertie, 
Thank you very much. Thank you, guys.